Hey folks, a quick update before we get started. This is our last episode of 2019. We will be taking a break for the winter holidays, but we'll be back in your newsfeed at the end of January. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Welcome to today's episode of TapCast. I'm your host, Chloe Warziniak. In today's episode, I talk to Corinne Yap, a PhD candidate in mathematics, about the Equip app, which is designed to help instructors fight implicit bias in their classrooms. Let's get started. Well, uh, thank you for sitting down with me today. Um, so you're a graduate student in the math department, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background, um, especially as regards to teaching. Um, so yeah, I am a third year graduate student and I have had a lot of experience teaching primarily outside of Rutgers actually. Uh, so for the past five or so summers, I've worked at a high school summer math program uh, for particularly gifted or talented high school students. Uh, it's called Mathily, which stands for Mathematics Infused with Levity, so math mm. Um And it is focused on teaching topics in discrete math and linear algebra, as well as a lot of under other undergraduate and graduate level mathematics for five weeks over the summer uh, in an inquiry-based learning format, which I could talk about if you wanted. Uh, And so I've been teaching there for a while, uh, and I've done a few semesters as a TA here at Rutgers for calculus and linear algebra as well. So I actually would love uh, for you to talk for a few minutes about uh, this inquiry-based learning. Um, I, I... it's a term that maybe some people may have heard of, may not have heard of, um, but I think you have a lot of experience mm-hmm. teaching that method. Can you tell us a little bit about like what that looks like? Yeah, so it's inquiry-based learning is kind of a style that's on the spectrum of just general active learning and active teaching. Uh, so in its, I would say, maybe most free form or purest form, uh, it's really a style where the teacher give some of the reins over to the students to sort of lead the class and discover for themselves. So another way to call it is discovery-based learning. Uh, They kind of discover the concepts for themselves, and the teacher is there to act as sort of a guide or a facilitator to uh, kind of lead them through the concepts, but not to actually take on the responsibility of of giving them all of the information. So a typical lesson at Mathily would be, okay, let me present to you this problem. And because at Mathily we focus on levity, it's usually a, a funny problem with a fun context so that the students don't really know what the all the technical words are. So I'm not going to call a graph a graph or a group a group. So they have to figure out if they've seen it before or not. Uh, but we pose this problem and then we basically say, okay, go. And the students are allowed to, are encouraged to get up, go to the board, try examples, um, discover patterns, make conjectures. And my job as as the instructor is to walk around the room and kind of prod people if they don't know where to go, ask them questions, not tell them answers. 
about, well, why do you think that is? Well, do you think that this thing you've observed is significant and why would it be? Uh, and eventually we get to you know, some sort of conjecture or some sort of theorem that we then want to prove. Uh, and that's kind of the style of, of everything that we do. Um, and so this can be uh, adapted to, you know, more structured college classrooms. And I actually was introduced to the director of Mathily, uh, Sarah Marie Belcastro, because I was in her inquiry-based learning class when I was an undergraduate uh, on discrete math. And it definitely had more structure. We worked out of a textbook. We had problem set problems. We had take-home exams. But it was still very much focused on group work and collaboration and not on lecture and, you know, just listening to someone tell us the information. Yeah. Very cool. Um, thank you. I'm glad you touched on the being able to put it into a more structured classroom. Mm -hmm. um, I'd imagine that's a natural question that, that people ask when they yeah, hear about this. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people ask, like, well, if you're allowing the students to go at their own pace and discover things for themselves, then how are you going to get through all the material? And mm -hmm. a lot of people believe you can't really get through a set amount of material if you're just letting the students go however quickly they want to go. Um, but my response to that is, well, at Mathly, we also have a set amount of material that we want to get to. Mm -hmm. Within the first two weeks, we have a set curriculum of topics that we want to get through. We have, you know, problem sets at night. And, and even when we are, you know, kind of going along with the students versus, uh, you know, setting the pace ourselves, we are still able to get through all of the material. And it's, you know, across three separate classes at Mathily with three different sets of instructors that we are all getting through the same amount of material, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it just requires a lot of thought. It certainly is, you know, if it, especially if it's your first kind of active learning or inquiry-based learning class, it will require a lot of work and forethought on the part of the instructor to know how to scaffold concepts correctly so that you do get students not just like wandering around in the dark, <laughs> you know, and eventually making their way to the right thing. You do want to provide that sort of guiding hand at, at particular times, and you need to know what those appropriate times are. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so the other thing before we get into the actual topic of, mm -hmm. of the episode that I wanted to ask you about uh, is you wrote and perform a play mm -hmm. uh, that's super awesome. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So actually, when I was an undergraduate at Sarah Lawrence College, uh, we don't really have majors, but you could say I double majored in math and theater. Um, and in around 2014 or so, I had an assignment in a playwriting class to write a history play and about a historical figure or something. And I was like, well, this is the perfect opportunity for me to merge my two main interests, math and theater. And uh, this started as a, a play about Sofia Kovalevskaya, who was a historical Russian mathematician born in 1850. And she had a very interesting life. Um, but at the same time, there were a lot of incidents happening both on our campus and on other campuses, you know, circulating in the news uh, about kind of racial bias incidents and and students uh, protesting or students kind of uh, gathering together and and collecting themselves to to ask the administrations, you know, 
what is it that we want from our schools and what do we feel the school's responsibility is to us as students of color, as students of minority groups, et cetera. Um, and so born out of these ex- experiencing these things on campus and hearing about them, I also started writing this other narrative of, of a professor who was teaching a class on a campus that was undergoing these sorts of incidents. And those were sort of kind of stream of conscious monologues that also had real analysis in them because I was teaching <laughs> a real analysis or I was taking a real analysis course. Um, and somehow over the years, these two merged together into one play because it just sort of made sense to me. Uh, and I performed it a couple years later at uh, my at my undergraduate institution uh, as a solo piece with another actor in it. Um, <laughs> but it was very experimental. There were a lot of theater people in the audience. Mm. Uh, but when I came to Rutgers, uh, other people had heard about it, and I performed it at other places. And they said, oh, you should perform this for a math audience. And I was very mm. terrified of that because I thought, oh, math people, I don't know any math people who are into theater, and I think they'll judge me, and I don't mm. know if I want to allow myself to be so vulnerable in front of the people who are my colleagues in this oh, different setting. Yeah. Um, but what surprised me was that when I, I I spent a lot of time rewriting in preparation for performing it at Rutgers, which was the first place I performed it in front of a math audience in 2017. And to my surprise, uh, there were a lot of positive responses to it. Uh, even though I delve into kind of uh, contentious subjects of race and gender in society today, um, there was there were a lot of people who came up to me afterwards, and you know it it spurned this kind of dialogue between me and and other people in the department that I under any other circumstance would have never imagined having these sorts of conversations with with these professors and these older graduate students. Um, so that was kind of the starting point um, because from there I had uh, a friend who was at Rutgers and then went to Yale, asked me to perform it at Yale. Someone who saw it at Yale asked me to come to her institution and it kind of went around the circuit until in 2018 I, I did it at the uh, MAA Math Fest, which is a big national math conference. And then I've I've been invited to uh, several math departments since then to perform it for their colloquium, for their AWM chapters, the Association for Women in Mathematics. Um, and I really enjoy these opportunities to both meet other people from other mathematics departments and also to have these sorts of conversations about generally about diversity in academia, in math, and how do we talk about things? Is it even important to talk about these sorts of things, you know, with our students uh, and with our peers? And if so, how do we start those conversations and what should we be talking about? Um, so I found those experiences really valuable. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, so that actually leads nicely into our, our conversation today. Um, so as you know, we're uh, this semester talking a lot on the podcast about diversity and inclusion uh, and creating inclusive spaces in our classrooms. Um, and so today we're talking about the Equip app, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you actually introduced me to. Um, so I'm glad you're here to tell me about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to read real quick off of their their website the their pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says Equip is a customizable observation tool for tracking patterns in student participation. The goal is simple: to to empower teachers in building more equitable classrooms. Um, so. 
how so based on so you've actually played with this a little bit um and could you tell us a little bit about what the process of using the app looks like yeah so it's nice that equip actually has a little bit of a, an example classroom on their website so you can kind of play around with it and look at what it would look like before trying to use it for your own classroom um, but essentially you start out by inputting uh, the data of the classroom that you want to observe. So typically it will be an instructor teaching the class and then a separate person who's the facilitator who's logging this data into the app. And you start out by putting the students' names and their demographic data that you want to kind of consider when you're using the app. So you could put in race, gender, uh, English fluency, you could put in um, age if you have, you know, age ranges if you have several students who are kind of older and returning, um, whatever you want to measure. Uh, so one challenge would be how do you collect all that data? Mm-hmm. You know, do you guess or do you send out a survey at, to your class asking for them to input all this data? And that kind of gets into some, a little bit of a gnarly territory. But once you have all this data, then you put in the what they call the discourse dimensions of what you want to observe. Uh, and so those are kind of the questions that you would want answered about the students. So in the example classroom, their example discourse dimensions are type of student talk, length of student talk. So like uh, when a student contributes to class, what sort of thing are they saying? Are they answering a question? Are they... Uh, asking you a question, is it a question related to the content or is it an unrelated question? You know, how long did they speak? Did they only say two words for two seconds or whatever, or 10 seconds? Um, teacher wait time, like if a teacher asks a question, how long do they wait before they uh, get an answer or before moving on? Something like that. Um, and then that's essentially uh, all that you need in order to start the app. You just need the student info and then these questions with uh, potential answers. And then when you're observing a class, you are basically logging all of the contributions that are being made during the class. So the easiest way to describe this is for a lecture, for instance. Um, and you can also assume that maybe the facilitator has videotaped the class and is looking back on it. So I can also talk later about what are some challenges if you're trying to live code all of these observations. Um, But every time, uh, so so we're watching the class, and every time some sort of form of discourse happens, so maybe a teacher asks a question or a student raises their hand, the facilitator will code that interaction into the app. So what they'll do is they'll click on the student's name who contributed to that, or who made that contribution. Uh, And then they'll answer all of the questions that you put in for the discourse dimensions uh, according to what that student said and what that contribution was like. So you'll record teacher wait time, student talk type, student length, et cetera, for that individual interaction. And you will do this for every interaction throughout the class. And then the idea is that you uh, record this data for not just one class, but for maybe several instances throughout a semester, kind of equally spread out. Uh, And once that's done, what Equip does is it aggregates all that data and then gives you a bunch of different tools to analyze it. 
So you can look at all the contributions plotted by whatever demographics you wanted to, to measure, race, ethnicity, uh, language proficiency, et cetera. And you can kind of analyze, you know, is there uh, evidence seemingly of instructor bias towards calling on male students versus female students and, and things like this, Yeah. So it helps instructors to maybe find their implicit biases a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because even with instructors who feel like they are aware of these things, right, maybe they know that they only have three out of 30 of their students as women, um, so they might go into the class thinking like, okay, I only have three students, women, I, I need to make sure that I involve them and include them. Right. When you're up in front of the classroom, you're not tracking all of these things in your head. So you might think that, okay, I after the class, you know, you might think, oh, well, I, I called on each of those three students like at least once during the class. And so I feel like I did a good job. But then the data might tell you like, well, you called on 35 students or 35 instances throughout the class and only three of those were women. And mm-hmm. so... In terms of the ratio, you're still not doing as well as you could be. So you mentioned that there's some potential challenges with with using the app, um, mm-hmm. and and you said that you were so the class where you played with this a little bit was mm-hmm. not your class, correct? You were observing someone else's, correct? Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about some of those those challenges of actually the the use and implementation of this. Right. So the class that I chose to observe was a flipped classroom. Okay. Which I. I think I just did that to make it more challenging for myself. I'm not sure why. But uh, it was interesting because, I mean, I picked the class because the professor is really interested in this uh, type of data collection, like like knowing these sorts of things about his class. He, he made it a flipped classroom because he thought, you know, that's a better way for the students to learn the material. And so he also cares about, you know, am I treating all of my students equitably? So... It was nice in that regard, um, in that the the instructor was very welcome to this sort of observation. But uh, I realized that when I first observed, I essentially used all of the default discourse dimensions that that the app had put in the example classroom, and I added a couple. And that was not good for my purposes, because in the flipped classroom, what I observed was students working in groups for the whole time on worksheets. Hmm. And so... Things like teacher wait time didn't really apply because any time that the teacher was interacting with a student, it was very much a dialogue. There was really no, you know, teacher standing at the front waiting for a student to answer and then kind of moving on. And also, I wasn't observing or recording really the things that I felt it was important to record in a more collaborative group work work setting. Um, So... I I realized, and I didn't really, I didn't have a way of knowing what I wanted to observe until I was really in that setting and and trying to log the contributions and realizing, like, I can't really answer these questions very well for each student contribution, um, because some of these just don't apply to any of the contributions. So so when I did it a second time, I I changed the discourse dimensions. And another thing that's difficult, as I mentioned before, is kind of gathering the student demographics. So because we were just testing this, um, 
and we're not doing anything formal with the data. Nobody's getting the data except for me and the instructor. Um, we didn't want to pass out a formal survey of like, okay, tell us your gender, your race, your et cetera. Um, so we essentially just guessed, um, which is not going to give you accurate data because you're guessing on someone's gender expression. You're not asking them. It's just based on how they present. You're guessing someone's racial background. You're not asking them. Um, so this was really just for the two of us, me and the instructor, to kind of fiddle around with the app and, and figure it out. But if you wanted to do it in a more formal setting, I think you would have to figure out how to do that, how to ask the students for that information in a sensitive way and in a way that kind of protects their privacy and their rights. Yeah, mm. yeah that definitely seems like that would be a challenge to figure yeah. out how to yeah. do that. You mentioned that, um, so I guess one of the ways you could do this, since it's a lot of recording uh, a lot of clicking in the moment. Certainly, mm -hmm. while you're teaching, you couldn't do this. Right. Uh, but you could potentially maybe record it and do it later. Right. So that was another problem that I ran into. It wasn't super difficult because the class was small. It was maybe 20 students or so. But I can imagine, especially in a group work sort of setting with a larger class, sometimes it was just difficult to hear the professor, what sort of questions he was asking. So so when I changed the discourse dimensions, I changed it to include like type of of teacher question. Is it checking in, you know, an open-ended question? Is it a specific question? Um, what sort of follow-up is the teacher doing? Is it more of a Socratic kind of inquiry-based follow-up? Is it more of an explanatory follow-up? Or did the teacher not follow up? And so when everybody is doing group work and talking all at once, then it's kind of hard to uh, hear what the teacher is saying. Um, and sometimes, you know, interactions are happening so quickly. If, if a teacher is interacting with a group of four students and he's switching from one student to another, then does that First of all, should you log those as contributions with the individual students, mm. or should you log it with the entire group? And if you log it with the students, then you know you have to very quickly fill out all of the answer all of the questions for each individual student. Um, so recording it would make it easier. Um, and that brings me to another problem, which is one thing that we wanted to measure was what how much time was the teacher spending with each group as opposed to each mm. student because he had concerns that maybe he wasn't spending as much time with one group as with another because one of the groups was kind of would ask more questions and monopolize his time a little bit and that would prevent him from circulating with all the groups. But unfortunately, I haven't seen a good way to uh, simultaneously log individual student contributions as well as group-wide contributions. Mm. Um, so I don't know if, if anybody else who's used the app might have have done this for a kind of group work sort of class, but I haven't I haven't seen any uh, good evidence of that yet. Mm. So it seems that the at least the the thought of the default design seems to be a little bit more suited towards a lecture that has some interactive student questioning, instructor questioning, right? Uh, rather than a lot of group work. Yeah, they do have uh, in the app. You can. Uh, when you're recording an observation, so an observation is an entire class period. It's called an observation. And when you're setting up the observation, you do have the option to uh, pick entire class or small groups. Hmm. But from looking at the example, um, my understanding is that the small groups are just analyzing specifically one single group 
within the entire classroom. Got it. So you're analyzing contributions from students A, B, C, and D, For as opposed class. to splitting into groups. I see. Um, hmm. So yeah, they do have examples of that, but it didn't it didn't seem to quite apply to this situation with the flipped classroom. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. So those are all my questions about the Equip uh, app. Do you have any other um, thoughts about the app that I haven't uh, that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I would say I think overall it's a useful tool, and I would like to at least continue playing with it and using it to see. I mean, even from the one class that I observed with the the better discourse dimensions. Um, we did see some patterns in the data that were like, oh, well, if this pattern continues throughout three or four observations, then this would be an indicator of perhaps some implicit bias on your part towards something. Um, so I would definitely be curious to uh, continue trying it and seeing you know, what the results are. Um, I think I would really love for someone to observe my class and just <laughs> see how it goes. Um, and I, I think if you're, if you're willing to put in the time for it, it's definitely worthwhile because, I mean, as mathematicians, we really believe data um, <laughs> over a lot of things. So just telling someone, I think you have implicit bias towards hmm. calling on men versus women, they might say like, yeah, okay, but they might not do anything towards correcting it. Whereas if you show them a, a data set that says, look, I can see that you called on men 10 times more than you called on women, even though there are only two times more men than women in your class, then they might be more apt to say like, oh, you're not just calling me out because you think I'm wrong. It's like there's this data to support um, your statement. Hmm. So yeah. I think overall it's, it's a useful tool. Um, yeah, and I would like to continue trying it. Awesome. So uh, I like to ask all of our graduate students that are that are on the podcast. Um, you recently uh, finished your qualifying exams. You are officially yes, a PhD candidate, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, so you've had to be able to balance uh, this clear passion that you have for teaching with doing research and and doing your work towards your degree. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you have any strategies that you'd be willing to share on balancing those two things? Um, yeah, I would say, well, first, don't listen to anybody who says that teaching isn't as important as getting mm -hmm. your research done. Because I understand where those people are coming from. I do agree that you can't spend all of your time on teaching and none of your time on research. Even because if then it's tempting. You, yeah, because <laughs> then you don't graduate at all. Yeah. Um, but I think it's not a bad thing to care about your students. And if caring about your students means that you want to spend a little bit more time giving them constructive feedback on their homework or, you know, spending a little bit more time holding extra office hours or review sessions or whatever, then that's what you should do. Um, and I think even if you don't find fulfilling opportunities for teaching during the academic year, then there are plenty of opportunities both at Rutgers and outside of Rutgers for teaching uh, over the summer. 
uh, like, you know, teaching summer courses, teaching at a summer program like I do or anything else. Um, I would say just in terms of balancing things that include teaching and research and all of the other things, uh, what I've learned is not to just jump at every opportunity when someone asks you to do something. Um, and I'm sure, Chloe, that you have learned this as well. That it's, I've learned it the hard way. Yes. Right, that it's okay to say no, and sometimes you need to say no to things. Um, yes. I know they're just uh, being in the department for a few years, you know, if you start making a reputation for yourself of being someone who's reliable, then people start to know you as someone who's reliable and to think, oh, okay, I need a reliable person to do this. I will pick one of these three reliable people I know. Right. If everybody has that mindset, <laughs> then the three reliable people end up doing everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what I've realized is that uh, it's okay to say no and and in the long run, it's not going to, it's going to be better for you um, because you want to make sure that you have time to spend on what you're really passionate about and not on things that you just feel like you should do because someone asked you to. Yeah, yeah you definitely realized that a lot sooner than I did uh, <laughs> in my program. Uh, at the beginning of this year, it was like, oh my gosh, I signed up for too many things. Mm -hmm. And I had to start saying, okay, no, I need to step away from this right. and I need to step away from that because, guys, I really need to graduate. Right. Um, yeah. That's usually, <laughs> like, people understand uh, when I say, no, seriously, I'm trying to graduate. They'll be like, oh, yeah, yes, that's fine. Talk, right. to, talk to me right. later. <laughs> um, but it was, it was hard to go through. Yeah. No, 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 I need to step away from things. Yeah. Yeah, um, it certainly would have been better if I hadn't uh, signed up for so many to begin with. <laughs> yeah. um, so then the last thing I like to ask, um, since this is a, uh, for the TA project and we talked to TAs, um, a lot of whom are new TAs and maybe haven't taught before, um, I'm just wondering if you have any general advice you want to share with uh, TAs. I would say don't be afraid to mess up. Hmm. So I remember my first semester as a TA there is one time that I, I just remember this so vividly, and I don't think anybody else remembers, but in a review session at the end of the semester, I did a problem incorrectly. And I, it was about limits, and I told the students that they could do this thing to calculate the limit, and it, they couldn't really do it. They, hmm. they had to put in a little bit more effort and write out a few more steps in order for it to be correct. And then it, sh it showed up on their final exam, uh, mm -hmm. essentially the same problem. And uh, because of the way that grading calculus finals goes, I won't go into all those details, but the math TAs will know what I'm talking about. It's very complicated. Um, you know, there's a very strict rubric, and mm -hmm. I don't know how many of my students fell into the trap, but i I'm guessing that a handful of my students at least, you know, did what I had told them they could do and got the problem wrong. Hmm. And I kind of, I posted this on, on a social media site about afterwards just saying, you know, I feel like I don't belong here. I feel like I just majorly screwed up something and that made my students fail this exam. You know, I was kind of over-exaggerating. And a lot of people who are mathematicians who are older and 
have been teaching for many, many years, you know, a lot of them reached out to me and said, this happens. Okay. And they, they shared their stories of when they majorly messed up uh, something when they were first teaching. Um, They said, you know, it just happens and it's part of life. And sure, maybe you feel like you did something that ruined these students' exams or their grades or whatever, but chances are you didn't. You know, um, the students who would have passed will have passed. The students who would have failed, well, they'll fa- they'll fail anyway. Um, and it's just part of growing and learning. Um, mm. And so I still think about it all the time and think, like, why didn't I do something differently or why didn't I do that better? Um, but it's made me more aware of, you know, being just intentional with everything and um, – about being unafraid to apologize for things if I get something wrong. Um, And I would say uh, that's a really important thing, uh, especially if you're teaching your first class. Um, And also another piece of advice that I uh, didn't mention earlier, but relating with equity is um, I would say it's okay to be open with your students about creating an inclusive classroom. Um, So I'm writing a syllabus currently for a class that I hope to teach in the future. And I got some advice from uh, actually the AMS Inclusion Exclusion blog, which is the place where I learned about this uh, Equip app because they have uh, a blog post about it. And uh, in a more recent blog post, uh, this guy Brian Katz, who's the editor-in-chief, wrote about, you know, some tips for creating more inclusive classroom and on day one introducing inclusivity into the classroom. And one of his tips is just be straightforward with your students and make sure that they know that this is something you're aware of and that you are willing to put out in the open, that your goal is to make an inclusive classroom and that people don't leave their identities at the door when they're teaching or when they're learning. Um, And that affects how we are students and how we learn things. Um, and that's totally okay, but just to, to be aware of it as we move forward together. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that story. I, I really appreciate it. Um, we get questions a lot about um, increasing our confidence as TAs um, because, yeah, we're new at this, and mm-hmm. it can be really scary, and I think a lot of our new TAs are, are scared of messing up. So oh, yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing that story and, and helping us normalize the, the idea that we're not all going to be perfect our first time out. Right, right. All right. Uh, well, thank you for being here. I, I really appreciate it. Thank this you for having me. Conversation. It's a fun time. My thanks again to today's guest, Corinne Yap. For more information about the Equip app, you can check out their website at equip.ninja. For more information, including other resources mentioned in this episode, you can find links in the show notes and on our website at tap.ruckers.edu. To stay up to date on all the latest TA Project news, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TA Project, or on Twitter at TA underscore Project. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.